This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Grunow. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Jonathan Reynolds, professor of Japanese architecture and visual culture in the Department of Art History at Barnard College and Columbia University. Dr. Reynolds' most recent publication is Allegories of Time and Space, Japanese Identity in Photography and Architecture, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2015. Dr. Reynolds, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. In your work, you've looked at the interplay of modernity and tradition in constructions of Japanese national identity in architecture and photography. And so I was wondering if you might be able to describe how does the Meiji period lay the foundations for a Japanese national architecture? Well, you know, I I wouldn't want to reduce all architectural practice to this question, but I I do think, especially in the Japanese context, uh, it has played a very important role in the directions that the profession has taken since the middle of the 19th century. If you think about how the major institutions of modern architectural practice got established in the 1870s and 1880s, by that I mean a university-based educational program at first what was called the Engineering College, what became Tokyo University, the establishment of major publications uh, such as Kenchikuzashi, and the establishment of what is now the AIJ, the Kenshiku Gakkai, the Japanese Architectural Association. All of these institutions were established at a time of tremendous change, during which there was a great deal of concern about Japan's relationship to the world. I mean, Japan was engaged in this national project of modernization with a gun to their heads. And they, as a part of that project, recognized that not only military, but broader technological training and development was necessary if Japan was to retain any political and economic autonomy. I think it's interesting that the rather unstable, brand new government in the early 1870s, one of the very first things they do is establish an engineering college, right? (laughs) This is at the very forefront of their their concerns. And as an early component of that engineering program, they establish an architecture program. There were several uh, people teaching in that program in the mid-1870s, and then it really takes on a new level of rigor and complexity with the invitation to Josiah Condor to come to develop the program. So I really think you need to think about modern architectural practice within that framework of this national modernization project in the context of the colonial pressures of the mid-19th century. Even if you look before that, uh, you know, it's very interesting that there are architectural forms borrowed from China and other parts of Asia being used in Japanese architectural practice before the mid-19th century that are also marked as having origins in, say, China, Karahafu, Chinese-style gable, which could possibly be translated as just sort of exotic gable, but is literally translated as, you know, kara, as Chinese gable. So there's always been a sense that architectural practices have an origin and that there is a dialectic between what is indigenous and what is from the outside. But this takes on a whole other level of intensity in the context of the transitions, the 1850s, 1860s, into the 1870s. And I really think that the emergence of a modern architectural practice in the 1870s and 1880s is always 
unfolding in this comparative context of what has been done, what is already established in Japan, and what we are adopting, and when we are adopting it, what we are adopting it for, right? And that sense of wanting to identify origins or to mark architectural practices continues. It continues, you know, right up to the minute. You, you read materials by the most contemporary architects, even younger architects, and there is still a rhetoric of either Japanese-ness or a, or, or a systemic rejection of wanting to assert Japanese-ness in architectural practice right up to like last Thursday. So I really think it has been an important framework for the language and thinking around architectural practice for a long, long time. So you mentioned this idea of Japanese-ness and, and national architecture, but one of the great ironies of the Meiji period is at this time when Japan is kind of coming of itself as a nation state, it's doing so in many Western forms. Mm -hmm. So when is it that Japan starts to adopt a more, what we might say, more Japanese-style national architecture? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on where you're looking. I mean, if someone is engaged in architectural practice close enough to the major urban areas that are starting to see the construction of what we'll call just very loosely Western-style architecture in the 1870s and 1880s. There is undoubtedly a certain self-consciousness of participating in preserving an established tradition in relationship to this new architecture that's appearing on the urban landscape. But if you're looking from within those architectural institutions that were being established in the 1870s and 1880s, one of the key landmark changes is the introduction of a carpenter contractor into the curriculum of the Imperial University's architecture program at the end of the 1880s, a man named Kiko Kiyoyoshi. And it is at exactly that time when he begins to teach, and he teaches, at least initially, apparently, very kind of pragmatic classes about proportional systems in the traditional carpenter tradition that he was trained in from his childhood, not grand theoretical formulations about the differences between Japanese and Western architecture. But at exactly that time, as he is beginning to introduce these initial formal presentations of traditional practices into the curriculum at the heart of the Western-style architectural practice, we have young students like a man named Ito Chuta taking those classes. And what emerges out of that? Well, Ito is one of, along with a man named Sekino, is one of the first two, dare I say, uh, first two true architectural historians in Japan. And he has a career that is a very successful teaching career, is a very successful design career. He builds a number of very important buildings. But he is also a major researcher with a substantial publishing record on Japanese architectural traditions and, interestingly enough, Chinese and other Asian architectural traditions as well. So that, I think that transition of the late 1880s and into the mid-1890s really changes things a lot. And at least some instruction, at least some, I don't want to over, overstate it, but at least some instruction in the history of Japanese architectural practice will be a part of the curriculum moving forward. Even when the architect nearest and dearest to my heart, Mayakawa Kunio, starts his study in the 1920s in the same department, one of the first assignments they have is drawing the Greek orders, you know, Doric, Ionic, Corinthian, right? He, he's still very much within this Western framework, not only in terms of architectural technology, but in terms of architectural styles. But 
Ito is one of his teachers, and Ito is teaching some traditional Japanese architecture. He's taking his students on field trips to see major monuments of Japanese architecture as well. I was doing research once at the Star Library at Columbia, and I, I came across this book. I think it was the one of the calendars of the Imperial College of Engineering, mm-hmm. and I, and you could actually read some of the final exams written by the architects mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Tatsuno Kingo and Ito Chuta. And, and it is that kind of, you know, reproduce the Doric order and talk about yeah. what kind of design you would use for this building. Okay. This is a, he's graduating in what, I think 1893. Uh, don't quote me, but some, somewhere around there. And in his graduate, you produce both a written thesis and a design. His design was a Gothic cathedral along the lines of Salisbury Cathedral. All gargoyles and everything. He 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 loves gargoyles and marginalia throughout his career. But you know, a Gothic cathedral based on very careful study of, of Gothic models. But his thesis is in at least in part about Horyuji, which is becoming at that moment one of the core canonical monuments of the Japanese architectural tradition. And as an added twist to that, his take on Horyuji is to link at least some of the or, um, ornament and some portions of the of the building and, and the sculpture around it to architectural practices all the way across Asia to the Mediterranean. So it is emphatically Japanese, but it is also emphatically international. It places Horiuchi, at least at some level, within this, this really truly international flow of ideas across Asia to the Mediterranean. Speaking of that kind of pan-Asian flow of architectural ideas, you, you mentioned Ito Chuta and might be best known for his work such as the Tsukiji Honganji. Yeah. And then he has this Chudeto Memorial Hall at the Kansai Earthquake Memorial Park, which is, and, and they're both in this very kind of pan-Asianist style that in some ways kind of typified Japanese architecture in the 1930s. Well, you know, the, the Earthquake Memorial is layers and layers, just like his entire career is layers and layers. The, the floor plan is like nothing, but it in some ways resembles the typical crossing plan of a Christian church. You know, go back to his graduation project, right? It doesn't look all that much like the Haydn, like the prayer hall of a typical Shinto shrine, but there are elements in the interior that are laid out like the Haydn of a Shinto shrine. It has as its back, if you will, the the crossing tower of the structure is actually in the form of a pagoda, which is, of course, from its earliest origins, a relic hall of sorts in the Buddhist tradition. If you go into the interiors, you see ornament that are clearly derived from Ito's careful study of ornament in Buddhist monuments like Horyuji. And then he's got these marginal, you know, these 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 kinds of gargoyle. One of my favorite elements in it is something I think that really comes out of his love of gargoyles and other kind of seemingly marginal elements, like uh, the, an aardvark that holds in its its jaws a, a round glass globe for a light fixture. Okay, now, like, where does that, I think where that comes from is his love of gargoyles from the medieval tradition, but it's like out of nowhere. Is it Christian? Is it Buddhist? Is it Shinto? Yes. But I, the earthquake memorial is like one of my favorite 
buildings. I love going there. I love teaching it. It's it's a wonderful, a very eclectic, bizarre. I mean, it's a little ugly, but it's really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and I was thinking because you're talking about the katahafu. It, it has that kind of katahafu shape. Yes, absolutely. Uh, oh, yeah, it has the uh, kuruma yose. It has the the formal entryway of certain very high prestige temples and shrines, and of course, palace architecture with the great katahafu, which is a high status architectural feature. You enter into a hall that, again, is very hybrid, has an altar, but may look a little bit like the layout of the prayer hall and the Shinto shrine, but but not, you know, you would often approach those from the outside rather than, you know, it, it has seating, right, which is not a typical Shinto interior thing to do. It has a kind of crossing. It has chambers on either side of the main, and then behind it is the ossuary, the relic hall, if you will, for all the ashes of all the victims, both of the quake and of the war, with a pagoda-like form above it. You mentioned Josiah Condor, and he's one of these foreign architects that we often mention in the Meiji period who come over to Japan, end up designing quote-unquote oriental-looking buildings. But then in the 1950s, I understand there's another wave of architects who are coming over and and this time engage in more of discovering modernist architecture, looking for these antecedents of modernist architecture and Japanese traditional architecture. So what draws them to Japan and how does this impact Japanese national architecture? Well, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right about both of those characterizations, but I would say that actually there is some continuity between the 1880s and the 1950s. Remember that in between there, we have Frank Lloyd Wright coming to Japan. And of course, he doesn't admit that Japan provides any any inspiration for him. It's it's recognizing confirmation of what he has already discovered. But anyway, he comes to Japan. Has obviously had a a, a very long standing uh, engagement with Japanese art, particularly prints, but art and architecture. You have Bruno Taut coming to Japan, living in Japan for several years in the 1930s after fleeing Germany because of the rise of the Nazis. You have Antonin Raimond, who actually originally comes to. Japan with Frank Lloyd Wright builds a very successful career in Japan until the mid-1930s when he recognizes the writings on the wall and as a U.S. citizen recognizes he's going to have to go back to the United States. I mean, he's a Czech origin, but is a U.S. citizen, goes back to the United States and only returns to Japan with the occupation in the late 1940s. So there, there are other Western architects coming to Japan, looking at Japan, thinking very seriously about Japan. But it is true that there is a kind of acceleration of that engagement. And, and the Japanese throughout this period, they invite various Western architects to come to Japan to visit in the 1930s. And in the 1950s, the Japanese are commissioning well-known Western architects, such as Le Corbusier, to build in Japan. Japanese architects who had gone to work with Le Corbusier and other Europeans at the Bauhaus and elsewhere in the 1920s and 1930s are now sort of coming into their own as major leaders in the field. And they bring with them their training from Europe, but they also have personal ties that, you know, several of Le Corbusier's former students work with him on the design for the museum that he designs in central Tokyo, in Ueno Park in, in Tokyo in the 1950s. The famous tour that Walter Gropius gets with several high modernists in tow is, of course, celebrated. And there is Drexler's trip to Japan. Drexler, I mean, you know, as, as a kind of curator of architecture, no one more influential in the early to mid-1950s than Arthur Drexler. Drexler gets a grand tour from a number of Japanese architects who have this 
longstanding uh, Yoshimura Jinzo, for example, with this longstanding relationship with the United States or other parts of the of the West, and goes back and writes a substantial book on the history of Japanese architecture. Right. So yeah, there's there's a lot of of that kind of person to person exchange. But as with the 1880s, there's also a great deal of interaction through publications. Western architects are becoming aware of the great monuments of Japanese architecture, such as Katsura, from publications. There's a very important book that was designed for a general public, uh, published by the predecessor to the Japan Foundation, Architectural Beauty of Japan, get some of the best architects and architectural photographers to put together this portfolio of the whole history of Japanese architecture, including a few modern examples at the end of the book. And that's being looked at by people in the West. Anyway, so there's there's lots of publication going on. And these exchanges, even if they're virtual exchanges rather than physical exchanges of people traveling back and forth, go in both directions and sometimes overlap one another. The people active in the so-called case study projects of the late 1940s through the early 1960s in California and elsewhere on the West Coast are very interested in Japanese architecture. And you can see shoji use of seating on the floor, various other features that were associated with traditional Japanese architecture being used by Charles and Ray Eames, for example, in their own home. And in the other direction, you have architects such as Seike Kiyoshi, who is trying to, in the reduced resources of the post-war period, find a way to design a a minimal, essential, middle-class house for Japan. He has some wonderful prototypes from the 1950s. And he's well aware of the case study houses and other examples of smaller design, very selective use of modern materials like steel trusses. One of his houses from this period uses a steel truss several of his buildings, his own house and, and one or two other buildings use a very small steel truss as support. And of course, look in the Eames house, look up toward the ceiling in the Eames house. And you will see. So what I'm trying to say here is there's a lot of back and forth. And possi- it, it, is, it might even be possible that prior borrowings that are incorporated into one design make that design more recognizable to viewers on the other side of the exchange, when they look at it, say, oh, yeah, I get that. I, see, I can see how that can work where we're, where we're working, right? And, and that may enhance the appeal. On the topic of continuities from pre-war time into the post-war period, I mean, we think of Tokyo architecture today as this kind of modernist architecture with big concrete blocks. You've also written about the National Diet Building that was constructed in the 1930s. Yeah. I mean, from the outside, it looks like a similar type of brutalist, almost you know, concrete structure. Do you see this as a type of continuity? I, I'd hesitate to call the, uh, you know, we, we use that term brutalist to think of people like Rudolf and whatever practicing in the 1960s. And that's a, a, as a very distinctive kind of mannered style, a sort of self-conscious rustication or, you know, various other features. And I would not describe the diet building as brutalist. You know, I, I think it's a combination of the very active embrace of the use of materials like reinforced concrete and steel in the wake of the earthquake and and earlier earthquakes, you know, the the movement toward massive construction, which makes it a little heavy and dull, the incorporation of a overly simplified deco style that informs some of the both interior and exterior treatment, 
but also has other layers of things going on. There are a few subtle surface ornaments that, like Ito Chuta's Earthquake Memorial, draw from well-established traditional models and our attempts to mark the building as Japanese, a building that is pretty profoundly non-Japanese, but mark it as, as somehow Japanese, because after all, it's the national legislature. Professor Suzuki Hiroyuki, who has been very kind to many of us in this field over the years, passed away just a few years ago, uh, has made the argument that that stepped tower at the center has uh, its own very bizarre iconography, that that stepped tower, while it obviously is a a direct citation of the mausoleum form uh, used in capitals around the world, uh, may also be a, a kind of sly allusion to the platform on which a sculpture of Ito Hirobumi that got melted down for the metal during the war effort. And it was, you know, that 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 stepped platform was a kind of political gesture toward a figure that many, but not all, the legislature saw as the kind of father of Japanese legislative practice. Uh, so it's a complicated building, but I have elsewhere argued that where it, it may have had a certain coherence in its earliest iterations in a competition from the late 19-teens, it was a building built by a committee and got, I think, watered down and obscured and frankly, well, I think it's a, a very, it, it ends up being a less than successful building. And I think that, that that committee process and all the politics around it, and I mean by that small case politics around it, uh, really dumbed down the building. I, I don't think it was a, you know, a great monument to the history of architecture before, but it really wasn't by the time it got built in the mid-1930s. So it certainly was a modern building. It had all the modern amenities. It had a modern structure with modern electrical systems and all the modern features of the 1930s. But it is not the modernism of Sakokura, Mayakawa, and others that emerges out of the 1930s. And there are probably other buildings that provide better stylistic continuity with the 1950s than the Diet Building. There was this recent New York Times article about the influence of Le Corbusier on modernist Japanese architecture. And I'm sure you've seen this because it, it cites you quite prominently. You know, I think visitors today, certainly, you know, when I go to Tokyo, you, you see a lot of these big kind of concrete structures and some people would say, well, Tokyo just looks kind of drab. It's concrete. Are we not giving enough credit to this architecture? Are we just not appreciating it for its aesthetic value? Well, I think many people have found that not every multi-storied steel frame skyscraper is as effective as the Seagram building. <laughs> you know, that modernist formula that developed through the mid-century uh, whether it's being practiced in New York or London or Paris or Tokyo, is susceptible to a uh, rather boring kind of formulaic form. And uh, when it's in the hands of people who have an acute sensitivity to the materials being used, the proportions being used, it can be breathtaking. But when it is in the hands of large-scale developers and it is just a formulaic building being churned out, it can be pretty bland, and Tokyo suffers from some of that in the same way that so much of Midtown Manhattan does. You know, if you just looked sort of at mid-scale at New York with the kind of rundown water towers on the top of the buildings, a lot of buildings in mediocre repair, you know, New York's pretty ugly too. But you can find, you know, I was just at that intersection on Park Avenue where I had the Seagram building directly to my right and Lever House up a block to my left. 
And it's an extraordinary urban space, right? And I can show you places in Tokyo where there are some spectacular views, where there are some wonderful buildings. I think in general, I tend to prefer myself buildings on a mid to smaller scale. And I think the buildings that are closest to my heart tend to be on a smaller scale and aren't really readily visible when you're looking across an urban landscape. But if you look on the big scale, I think Tange's Olympic Stadium is a gorgeous building. And I think standing on that corner with Meiji Shrine on one side and the bizarre Champs-Élysées-like road leading up to Montesando over sort of slightly behind you and to your left, and with Tange's Olympic Stadia uh, in front of you, you know, that's great architecture and it's great urban space. So I think that, you know, Tokyo has its moments. Yeah, there's some very bland, uh, dull, monotonous buildings in Tokyo, no question. But uh, I think you can find some really special, both large scale and lots of small scale magic in Tokyo if you look for it. One difference that I've noticed between Tokyo and New York, and I mean, for obvious reasons, Tokyo doesn't have some of those old buildings from the 20s and 30s that New York does. Right. But recently there has been an effort in, in Tokyo to restore some of these older buildings. So yeah. we have like the Mitsubishi Ichigokan was rebuilt, Shimbashi Station. Yeah. Uh, the Bankers Club, the Ministry of Justice, and of course, Tokyo Station, all being restored to their original appearance. Or completely rebuilt. In some cases, restorations, but in many cases, built from scratch. Right. And in some cases, mainly being just a facade of the older building. Exactly. There is that bizarre phenomenon of having a completely modern building with about a one foot thick facade that vaguely alludes to the building that once stood on its site. So what, what do you make of that? Why now? Why, why is there now this push to preserve these historical buildings? Well, I think there are uh, a bunch of different reasons for, for doing that. The preservation of a radical rest, uh, restoration, a Tokyo Station, at least the fabric of it has been preserved. So I think you can talk about restoration there. Of Tokyo Station was hard fought. Preservationists, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was in graduate school, people very engaged with uh, preservation like Professor Suzuki were at wit's end because people wanted to bulldoze that station because it was like this precious land. It was some of the most valuable land in the world. And it sprawls and it's a little chaotic, especially when you get inside and get down into the areas where all the tunnels leading to the tracks are and so on. And yet that facade that that on the on the west side of the building, you know, facing towards the Imperial Palace, is one of the precious few buildings from 19 teens and is a great representative of a particular style of building that is representative of that period, you know, of, of that, that is, you know, we, we talk about the red brick of Meiji. That was the red brick of Meiji, even though it was completed a couple of years after the end of Meiji. And they had to fight like cats and dogs in order to stop developers from either wiping it out completely and building something, you know, think Penn Station, if it doesn't give you nightmares, right? Something brand new and probably incredibly anonymous and awful. And they succeeded in doing that. But many of the examples you've just described, the developers won. And their rather thin concession was to make a kind of fussy, almost fetishistic little gesture to the past by placing a a thin facade onto the building that they completely demolished. And then, you know, there are a couple of weird things. I mean, you know, the Shinbashi station that's been reconstructed is built from scratch and it's in the face of that whole Shiodome area being, I mean, explode. I mean, I remember Shiodome basically being, you know, rail yards and industrial no man's land. And it is now 
filled with skyscrapers and bustling. And, you know, it's this kind of retrospective to let pretend we can remember this great dynamic era of Meiji, you know, and all that was accomplished in Meiji, because it's a, a wonderful example of early Meiji, you know, the introduction of, of the first major rail line in Japan and so on. And so each of these examples has slightly different motives. And I think everyone recognizes that an awful lot of the anonymous architecture being built at a rapid rate since the 1970s with the economic boom of the 70s and 80s and so on is anonymous. And, you know, it's, it's good business for a developer to have something that is really visually distinctive. And one way to make the building that is otherwise largely undistinctive distinctive is for the first two or three stories to have some you know, vague gesture to a, a very different kind of construction sticking out. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.